As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you allowed to speak? How high is your ELO score? I don't know. I'm going to have to go check. Can I talk about games? Yes, we're good. We're good. I got it up to 500 today. Oh, that's fabulous. I am allowed to talk about games today. I was very, very worried because we are slaves to the ELO. They tell us what to think. We are a board gaming podcast about board games. We are going to talk about our Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment that is more or less what we reviewed last year, the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter, and our topic this week. Walker assures me he has many, many subtitles. Sometimes we get carried away with subtitles, but I am parsing it as, why is this still on my shelf? Games that we can't or won't get rid of, but probably won't ever play again. Or just know you won't play it. Uh, yeah. See, the thing is, I want to try to approach this with as much hope and optimism oh, as true, possible. True. I recognize that you're right, and the games that I'm talking about, the odds of my ever playing them again are vanishingly but there, small. there could be just legitimate reasons why you don't play them. Of course. So, with that in mind, let us begin. Let us talk about the Eurus. What did we review last year, Walker? Mark, we reviewed an amazing game, which I wish, like all the rest, we had time to play. This one was called Cerebra, and it's sort of like... This the Disney movie with the people in your head and messing with your emotions and there's sadness and joy and depression. And Everybody you're... makes that comparison. I have not seen that movie. Well, you should. In, okay. Inside Out. I believe that is what the movie is called. And it, well, because it's the same sort of thing. They have those emotions in the little girl's head, and they they do what they do, and it's you know it plays out. You know, a little bit like the game type thing. So Cerebri the Inside World is uh, somewhat of a rarity in the Eurogame market in that it is a medium-heavy game that is very, very, very quick. 
the analogy that I would draw in terms of rules depth uh, to playing time, you'd probably have to go to some of the PAX games like PAX Renaissance or PAX Premier First Edition or uh, PAX Perforiana to really get that same level of of ratio. Uh, Cerebria is less crazy and less wild than a lot of the PAX games. And it's really a departure from some Mind Clash's other stuff, because Mind Clash's other designs, Perseverance, we don't know yet, but I suspect it's the same. You know, they tend to be 120 to 150 minute affairs, even when you're moving at a good clip. But Cerebria is about 60 to 75 minutes, even with new players. I've played it, sadly, I think I've only played it once or twice since we reviewed it, which is a shame. I adore Cerebria. It is one of my favorite underplayed games in my collection. True. The ability for these guys to step out of the box and, and, and have a theme that is completely different than anything else that's out there and have it work and play differently than anything else that is out there. I'm just looking forward to more from these guys. Oh yeah. Mind Clash is great. And Cerebria was designed by 17,000 people. You may indeed be one of them, but some of the names are going to show up again, namely Nick Shaw and David Surtse, who primarily, if not exclusively worked on the solo system, which I have not tried. But uh, wait for more on them later. Yeah, I, w- I wish I could play Cerebria more. But just to recap what we talked about a few weeks ago, one of the reasons why Cerebria doesn't hit the table very often is because not only is it a heavy game, which is fine. We play with lots of people able to deal with that level of rules grit. But it requires, at best, four players, especially for first play. You can play with three. You can play with others. But you either have to introduce the expansion elements, which complicates the game a little bit more, and you don't want that with first-time players necessarily, or you start end up with asymmetric numbers on teams, which is kind of awkward anyway. So usually it's a four-player-only scenario. And getting f- exactly that many people who are willing to play this kind of game doesn't happen all the time. I've done it a couple times, and I've had a great time each time, and I wish I could play it more. That is Cerebri of the Inside World. That is the game that we reviewed just second, three, two, one, exactly one year ago. What I love most about you, Walker, is your precision. I know. Well, that's how well that in your packs. That's, ooh, I'm the eye candy, baby. All right, on to the games that we played this week. I played all sorts of stuff online this week, Mark, that's new. Istanbul. I picked up the app for that. It's by Rudiger Dorn and is put out by Pegasus. And it uses a very interesting and unique worker placement that's not in a lot of games. So it's something different. You have this stack of workers. And as you move around the board, you leave them behind. And either you're going to waste a whole turn gathering up together, or you can like retrace your steps and pick them up again. And so it's sort of fairly interesting. And you're trying to buy these gems faster than everybody else. So it's not this huge sort of point grab. It's just get to that many gems before anybody else does. So it's an, that's also a nice change for in a Euro game than the rest of them. So overall, I'm looking forward to playing it more. I only got to play it a couple times because of all these other games I, were, I was playing. And that's Istanbul. Rudiger Dorn, very much like Reiner Knizia to a certain extent, kind of abandoned middleweight Euro games a while ago and then just started producing lighter, more accessible fare, which is fine. Knizia has kind of sort of taken a couple steps more towards more gamerly stuff recently. Rudiger Dorn is one of my favorite Euro designers. I absolutely adore Goa, Louis XIV, Traders of Genoa, games like that, which parenthetically also all, like Istanbul, involve a grid constructed out of diagonals where you leave pieces behind in different ways. He just loves games that do that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in, I don't say it's anything like uh, Yokohama, but it's the same sort of thing where it's a bunch of uh, squares that you lay out on the board so that it's going to be different every time and you do something funky with workers, so... Yeah, in that it is kind of sort of almost worker placement, but not really. It is very much like Yokohama in its action selection. I think it's a legitimate comparison. 
On the topic of Reiner Knizia, I get to play Blue Moon. Blue Moon is my favorite two-player game of all time. It is also my favorite card game. It is, well, favorite lots of things. It's my second favorite game after Tigers and Euphrates. And it was kind of sort of his response to living card games or constructible card games. But like most instances, because you don't have the time or the energy or you or an opponent to go and construct a deck from scratch, much of the time you play with the pre-constructed decks, which is just fine, because, of course, it being a Reiner Kinsey game, they're balanced to a knife edge. I absolutely adore Blue Moon. I played with the original Cosmos version that was published about 15 years ago with the large tarot-sized cards, and which, strangely enough, showed off less art than the smaller card Fantasy Fight version. Bizarre element. But bl- the reprinted version, Blue Moon Legends, put up by Fantasy Flight is also a very, very, very excellent package. I just happen to have the old Cosmos decks, and I felt like uh, like that form factor. There are many people who will argue, to varying degree of persuasiveness, and I don't want to open up a big Pandora's box of genre classification, because we have those discussions, and they happen. I just don't want them to happen every week. <laughs> there are some people who argue that every game is basically an auction game. No matter what kind of game it is, it's fundamentally an auction. And I'm sympathetic to that as an intellectual exercise, but it's a game like Blue Moon where you really do see the virtue of that, because a lot of people think this is a card-battling game, or this is a game that's supposed to be kind of like Magic. It's not. It's a two-player auction game, where you have the resources available in your deck, and you're essentially bidding on pots. Oh, yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's very much like Land, Air, and Sea, where you sort of have to decide, is this a battle that I can win? No, i got to pull out now and save my resources for somewhere else. Precisely, and, and and also another similarity with Land, Air, and Sea, the value of the pot changes as the round goes on. Of course, in Land, Air, and Sea, the victory point values start going up and up and up. Similarly, in Blue Moon, there's this big hurdle where you get to win one dragon to your side if you've played five or fewer cards in your combat and support areas. Whereas if you hit six or more, then it's two dragons and knowing when to retreat and knowing when to push. and be... Anyway, it's a delicious game. It is dismissed by many as being, I win the fight if I can, I either have the card I need or don't. Which I often hear Walker talk about in terms of hand management games, sometimes legitimately, sometimes illegitimately. But Blue Moon is an absolutely fabulous game, and it's one of those games where you have to know the decks a little bit, but knowing the decks a little bit takes hardly any time at all. And once you get to that level, the subtleties emerge, and it is such a beautiful game of cat and mouse, of knowing when to escalate, of timing, of strategic retreats. It is a joy to play. It's sadly out of print again. If you have a chance to try Blue Moon, if any kind of these confrontational two-player Euros at all ever appeals to you, I highly recommend it. Blue Moon is sadly underrated. There are lots of people who, who appreciate its genius, but there are lots of people who also have played it once, especially the hoax versus Volca matchup, and dismiss it as a game of war or a game of... I either I can either win the fight or I, I, I can't, and so there's no real choices to be made. But uh, I could gush endlessly about Blue Moon. I have in many other contexts. I got to play Blue Moon again, and it made me very, very happy. And that was Blue Moon by Rainer Knizia. Nice. I have fond memories of a game called St. Petersburg by Bernard Bernhofer and distributed by Hansum Gluck. So it was put in beta on Board Game Arena. Still haven't got my check yet, Merck. Which version was put in? Put this in is this is the part of it. Like, okay. why why would they put first edition on there? Really, the art is painful, and the minimalization of it is is like I said. Since I, I like ruining games, that I have fond memories of by playing them over and over again and and weeding out all the weaknesses of the games. But anyway, I, I, once again, I but digress. like but like all the old like Mistress of Ceremonies, all those old noble problems, like yes. 
Oh wow, it's That's so a weird. Strange it, choice. There was I read read something very briefly where it says you know new art on the way. So I'm wondering if they have okay second edition stuff and it's going to come in. Do, Not do, sure. Do some journalism wor- uh, work here, Walker. I, I think uh, I no, no, no. This is an opportunity for follow up. I'm very sure. I will follow up and see if they're going to introduce all the second edition stuff. We can only hope because, like I said, playing it multiple times a day really sh- makes the weaknesses of it shine through. I.e., if one person doesn't know what they're doing, they leave cards for other players, which puts them well ahead of everyone else and then causes this, you know, cascading effect and the game is over before it really begins. So St. Petersburg on Board Game Arena, give it a try. It's this very interesting game where you're drafting cards from a pool and you sort of put them into your tableau and a very early drafting tableau builder really yeah i I, like i said very fond memories of it because uh there's say there's carpenters and ship makers and just say you know all sorts of different things if as you draft ones that are exactly the same they get cheaper and cheaper so they get cheaper in price so you get them into your tableau more and you're starting to make more money so you get these cool combos going off you can upgrade cards and and then there's different phases so at the end of a phase cards that you bought that phase will generate you some money so you can buy cards in the next phase. And there's five different phases of the game and you sort of have to get little mini engines going for each phase. So you'll have money for the upcoming phase. It's a very interesting game. I'm looking forward to playing it some more. And it's a relative rarity in that it handles multiple phases with a fair degree of cleanliness, right? It's not like, oh, I, I can't remember how the round works. Now I'm doing this different thing. Now this other thing's happening. It's just simple. You just go through the different types of cards and the different cards trigger at different phases. That's right. Yeah. You got, like you said, your money makers and you have the nobles and you're just trying to get different, you know, uh, all sorts of different ones because they're going to score you more points. And Lots then, of points for yeah, nobles. It's semi-interesting. St. Petersburg by Hans M. Gluck. So Spirit Island Jagged Earth is the second expansion to Spirit Island, the cooperative settler destruction strategy game. Full disclosure, this is not a review copy, but it came courtesy of listener Woogie. Thank you very much, Woogie, because Canadians still don't have their copies yet and probably won't for many weeks. But our hookup had us covered. I'm also a personal friend with the designer, our Eric Royce. Although, finally now, this is material that I didn't have any hand in playtesting. This is the first set where I hadn't seen any of it prior to it being published. I'd seen some of their progenitors that were went on the cutting room floor. And I got to play Grinning Trickster, who stirs up trouble, who has such lovely effects as Let's See What Happens and Why Don't You and Them Fight. And it was absolutely wonderful. If you know and love Spirit Island as most sane human beings do, this is just more of what you've come to expect. The number of new spirits in Jagged Earth is truly astounding. It nearly doubles the quantity of spirits. And the level of asymmetry is really striking. And then above and beyond that, the quality of writing and the quality of world building is truly impressive. Now, adding to this is a number of play variants that I think can really add to the thematic hook, and I just want to point out two especially. One of them is a scenario which I, to this day, still think of as the Mark Speak French and Everyone Gets Mad scenario. Originally, when the game was being designed, it was thought that there should be a play mode whereby, since the spirits are fundamentally alien, not only just to the Dahan and the invaders, but to each other, you know, a fire spirit and a rain spirit won't necessarily understand each other. They, they, they just don't have any common frame of reference. And so there's a play mode whereby, as a player, you are not permitted to employ any language that any other player at the table understands. Nice. And I tried this a couple times back in Massachusetts, and so I happened to be playing with people who didn't speak French, so I just spoke French during the game. 
and everyone else was speaking with points and grunts, but it, it works out great, except sometimes it really angers people. <laughs> it can get people really frustrated, especially when they don't have a language available to them, but other people at the table do. Right, Being reduced to grunts and gesticulations when someone else is able to speak freely, or at least freely enough for them, can feel like an intensely frustrating experience. And there were a number of... Um a number of choice words. <laughs> well, you, you can just go all in Klingon and you'll be fine. Sure. Klingon, any, any, any Conlang, if you're deep into J.R.R. Tolkien and you want to speak in Elvish, go ahead. Go crazy. Fill your boots. Anyway, I'm glad that this made it back in. I haven't tried it again yet. It's been a few years. But the fact that it's back just makes me happy as an option. The other option, which is wonderful, is you are encouraged to consider the possibility of renaming your spirits at the end of the play. Because one of the great things about Spirit Island is that the power ramp up is utterly wonderful and it can encourage you to branch off and explore other effects you know your fire spirit starts out as a fire spirit but they might shift into a disease causing plague bearer or something of, of the like so my grinning trickster who stirs up trouble by the end of the game was causing civil wars and so i figured that an appropriate rename for the grinning trickster who stirs up trouble is curiosity sated by rampant bloodshed nice there was a lot of death <laughs> caused by the strife there in that game Wonderful time with Jagged Earth. I have just begun to scratch the surface. There are a number of number of locals, especially Huey and Dewey, who love Spirit Island, so I'll probably be getting more playthrough of it later. Going to be trying more of the new adversaries. We tried the Tsarist Russians, who are nasty. Having explorers being able to cause blight by themselves because their explorers do plus one damage at a certain difficulty level was very constraining in an interesting tactical challenge. But again, mostly I want to try the new spirits. And so I, that's I love the new variant introduces where you uh, mill the spell deck over and over again, trying to get the cards that you need. No, wait, that's that's every game. Okay, look. Okay, here's so the deal. Market... Whoa, 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 whoa! No, no, no! Hold on! <laughs> Hold on! No, oh come on! I gotta get my jab in and then move on. That's here. how we. That's you can't how we do, do drive-by criticism. That's what do you when mean? I... That's my mo. Okay. That's how we when do... I was speaking of certain people. In the context of Blue Moon, who figure, well, it's not really a game because there's no such thing as cane management because either I have a card I need or I don't. I might have been thinking about your attitudes towards many games of hand management. It is about making do with what you get. And sure, sometimes you're going to get more lucky than others. But complaining that milling this powers deck is the key problem of Spirit Island makes me reevaluate the legitimacy of you're not liking just, the first place. Just blink twice when you're done. Move on now, Walker. <laughs> That was Spirit Island, Jagged Earth. You and I got to play an actually good game. Oh, boy. There was a game called Undaunted North Africa. Now, I feel as though this new Undaunted series is one of the greatest deck builders slash skirmish games that have come out in quite a while. Because not only does it, you know, sort of reinvigorate deck building and do new and interesting things with it, it also has a streamlined skirmish, non-fiddly bit that is just super fun to play. It is really just the full package and i love playing every single time so this is a review copy we got from the designer david thompson and we reviewed undaunted normandy a couple months ago which was the first game in the series and undaunted north africa has a number of very very salient advantages i think over undaunted normandy and a couple things that give me pause we've played a handful of times 
There's a lot more to explore. One of the things that's better is I vastly prefer the setting. As, as we've commented before at length, and as David Thompson acknowledges, Normandy's been done to death. And so being able to go to the exploits of, in this particular case, the Long Range Desert Group, which was a unit of Allied soldiers fighting the Italians in North Africa, is a less explored avenue of World War II in wargaming generally, whether it's lighter stuff like this or, or, or the heavier stuff. I am, of course, excluding the... the uh, epic-making campaign for North Africa, which everyone plays on a weekly basis, I have no doubt. The other thing that I really like about Undaunted North Africa is that it introduces a level of asymmetry. In Undaunted Normandy, the only asymmetry came from the scenario designs, and even then it was usually just, well, this side has machine gunners and this side has access to their sniper. All the snipers were the same, all the machine gunners were the same, it was all equal, which is fine. At a, at a level of complexity, this isn't a complaint. But asymmetry often really helps sell a historical setting and helps to sell a narrative. Undaunted North Africa really doubles down on that. The long-range desert group has radically different types of soldiers. The Italians are more or less like the standard Americans or Germans were in Undaunted Normandy. The part where I'm a little less sold is, number one, the scale has changed remarkably. So before... They were squads. And so if a squad takes damage, that represents one member of the squad dying. Now, each unit consists of a single human being, a, a literal man. And so the, the, the framing starts to lose... This sounds like a petty thing, but in terms of play experience, it, it impacted me non-trivially. The framing of four guys and a jeep against three guys in the context of these scenarios struck me as really weird. And so that that was a little strange. It also made the casualty system a little bit odd. Yeah, it led to that weird scenarios where if you didn't, you know, uh, purchase units quick enough, there was a chance that you'd lose a unit before you even got to either A, act with it or, or reinforce it at all. Exactly. Especially since so far all the scenarios that we've done, we've played the first three scenarios, all of them rely on one side being able to bomb uh, certain locations with a demolition skill. In Undaunted Normandy, it was very simple. The ones who grabbed dirt were riflemen, and every side in every scenario had access to riflemen. Here, there are specific units, and so it's very, very simple as the Italians, or at least very straightforward, kill this one guy. <laughs> Which is okay, but it feels like a narrowing of the scope. Again, it, the, the, the scale has been narrowed, the focus has been increased, and to a certain extent that's that's both good and bad. But the scope of your objectives has now narrowed in a way, uh, which kind of leans on this notion of, of the casualty system and the small number of dice you're going to be rolling, which means that the possibility of fluky dice results get, get increased. So I don't know that it's uh, an unmitigated advance from Undaunted Normandy, but I adore, just like you, I adore the system. Just to the, the initiative system right off the beginning where you get a hand of four cards and you actually have to throw one away for initiative and just, and it is Sometimes it is fairly important. You definitely want to go first, but you don't want to get rid of that really good card because it's a high number. And, and then you want to get rid of this card that does nothing because you get these fog of war cards in your hand that are useless. And you want to get, you know, it's fantastic. I just really love it. And also introduces vehicles, which I thought they did a very interesting way of balancing it out because vehicles can only traverse on certain map tiles. You know, they're blocked in other ways. And the fact that in order just to move them, you have to give up a whole card like, 
you know, you have to use the driver and that's just to move the tank. And then, so I think they did a good job about balancing that out. Vehicles are often the bugbear of your simpler war games. This was definitely true of Upfront. This has been true of a lot of games. This is one of the reasons why Combat Commander just didn't have vehicles at all. They're like, look, we can't. Mixing the scale doesn't work. But a much lighter, more abstract game like Undaunted allows you to pull some kinds of these abstractions. And at this level, these levels of abstractions I very much appreciate. The vehicle rules are a breeze. I was able to explain to you all the new rules in Undaunted North Africa in uh, under two minutes, I think. It's just, look, anybody who's sitting in this space has access to new actions. That's it. That's more or less it. And so it's it's really a triumph. So the design work here is really impressive, and watching the system evolve is great. I can't wait to explore more of it, and I really appreciate being able to see the Undaunted system move forward. I'm very curious about what they're, where they're going to go next, what kind of improvements to the system, and we won't have long to wait because the next product in the line is going to be Undaunted Reinforcements, which is going to introduce new scenarios for both Normandy and North Africa. And I'm very curious to see whether it's going to have any further rules tweaks or backporting some of the new rules from North Africa to Normandy. Really enjoyable, really engaging. I have some doubts about the scale. I have some doubts about the way the scenarios work with respect to the narrowness of the goals. But honestly, these are relatively paltry complaints in the face of a very compelling package. If you haven't tried Normandy and find the setting appealing, you can jump right in. This is absolutely not something just for people who played Undaunted Normandy. And as somebody who has played a lot of Undaunted Normandy, I'm still up for more Undaunted, especially when they vary on it in this way. So I'm, I'm a big, big fan so far of Undaunted North Africa. And that is by Trevor Benjamin, David Thompson, and put out by Offspree Games. We got to pull out the crew again. Quest for Planet Nine. It was the end of a game night. We wanted something a little bit quicker. And Dewey in particular was like, oh, yeah, 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 the crew. That was awesome. And so the crew is also great in terms of filler games because you play it until you're done. A hand can take, you know, sometimes hands take a little bit longer because you're, you're really drying out that last, that last bit. But sometimes they end very quickly because, you know, someone messes it up in their first card play, which is fine. And the fact that it's so quick really kind of de-emphasizes this. You know, there's a stress in a lot of co-op games. There's a kind of a burden, especially when you're not allowed to talk. And I find that the crew, simply because of how nice and approachable it is, and as you constantly point out how well it leverages established formalisms of trick-taking, such that it's accessible to new, new players, really helps to cut a lot of this stress without cutting much of the tension. And so I'm here thinking about who has what card, and if I play this, will they know what to do? You know, all these psychological tricks and inferences that you get out of your good trick-taking games. And the, the the crew absolutely persists in it. Now, of course, Dewey shouldn't have played that three, and I'm going to blame him forever for playing that purple three. Leading the purple three was the act of a, of, of truly a suicidal saboteur. Yeah, he, I don't think he realized it was a cooperative game. At that moment, he thought maybe he had one. I'm not sure exactly what he was thinking. I did have occasion to try to explain trick-taking to Louis, though, because Louis said, we asked Louis, have you played a trick-taking game? And he said, no. He had vague memories of hearts, and he had vague memories of a, a Reiner Knizia climbing game called Escalation. And as per usual, when it is time for me to explain a trick-taking game to somebody who has not played trick-taking games before, I did a terrible job. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, Louis, took to, uh, Louis took to it very, very well, and uh, a great time was had by all. And that was the crew, the quest for Planet Nine. By Cosmos Games and Thomas Singh. Mark, you and I got to play a game called Roman Roll by Nick Shaw and David Turtse. 
As I alluded to, these are the two individuals who worked on the solo mode for Cerebri the Inside World. As it happens, Nick Shaw has been collaborating with David Torte for a lot of his solo modes. Just as an example, another game from PSE that we both love, namely Blitzkrieg, World War II in 20 Minutes. The solo mode was designed by David Torte, and as it happens, Nick Shaw collaborated with, with that work. Uh, whereas this is, uh, you know, fully fledged published design, fully crediting both Nick Shaw and David Torte, and this was by PSC Games, and we got this as a review copy as well. So I'm not sure exactly what to say about this Roman role. It uh, it didn't appeal to me, Mark. <laughs> Why did it not appeal to you? Walker? What you're doing in Roman roles, you you roll in these dice, and they have all sorts of different symbols on them, and there's all there's a, a banquet of actions that you can take. And you're going to draft two of these dice, and some of them don't have actions on them. So you got to be careful to make sure you get enough icons to do both the actions you want. There are there are a plethora of actions as well that you don't need these symbols for, but they're not as useful as the other ones. I just felt over like overall there wasn't enough comboing going on. I'm wondering if it was just because we weren't close enough together, or it was just sort of like individual actions. It wasn't enough stuff linking everything together. It was sort of, okay, I want to build this. I'll go here. I'll grab that dice to get this hmm. stuff. And then, I don't know. I, I think I'll need to play it again. But it had, you're, what you were doing is you were building these buildings that were these Tetris pieces that you were drawing out on this grid. And you were building up legions to conquer these lands down at the bottom. And you got to build ro- roads down there as well. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a terrible game. But I think it was, it went for two hours, though. It was lengthy. Well, part of that was a rules explanation. Again, I don't think I did a very good job of the rules explanation, which is which is not exactly surprising. I like David Sorte, and I like a lot of his work, but it doesn't tend to be very clean. It doesn't tend to be very unified. It tends to be a little bit sprawling, a little bit rules-heavy. Uh, not exactly you're more elegant in the Euro design sphere. And I, I will say this about Roman Roll. It's misleading a lot of people, because in the press that PSC is putting out, and indeed in the very title of the game, they're effectively saying that this is a roll-and-write game. It is not. I don't know whether this is because they are confused as to what it is, or whether they they have some sort of deep insight as to why this is basically a roll-and-write game when it clearly isn't, or if, you know, I hate to be crass, but, you know, they're just trying to cash in on the fact that that, it's sort of a craze. So it's not, as some people have said an attempt to make a heavier Euro game out of the roll and write structure. This is an action drafting game where instead of placing tiles, you just have to have, happen to be drawing. You could have easily re- replaced the tetrominoes with tiles. Maybe it would have even been in some cases more functional, in some cases less, but it certainly, it, it just would have been a minor component change. You can't take a tile laying game like Tigers and Euphrates, draw on a whiteboard instead and say, well, now it's a roll and write game, not, not a tile laying game. Things don't work that way. I'm wondering if we'll play differently as well with more players. Maybe it doesn't shine as a two-player game. Well, I enjoyed it more than you did, I think. I think that it is uh, very much in the standard fare of a lot of Euro games where you're facing this efficiency puzzle and there are all these infrastructure benefits you can get and or these special powers you can unlock and you want to do everything at once. It's like, well, I really want to build this building. Well, it'd be easier if I built this building first. Actually, I'd get a bonus if I got this advisor first, but then you're suddenly pushing that building that you need farther and farther into the future. And I kind of like those trade-offs. In terms of Euro management games, in terms of Euro efficiency puzzles, I think it's okay. And the, the dice drafting, although not roll and write, which is fine, I actually quite liked. We were getting to the point where 
there were scarce actions, and I had a vague sense of what you wanted to do, and I had a sense of prioritization, so the drafting did not feel like multiplayer solitaire drafting, like the way a lot of other drafting games do. And the dice are huge and chunky, and I'm, I'm pretty weak Yeah, the that. dice are wonderful. The dice are... are, and it, ha- are it, has these, it has this interesting thing where the resources can be used in different ways, which I liked, right? You could store them or use them directly off the dice or use them to bribe uh, centers, which, you know, improved your actions. I thought that was interesting as well. So instead of storing them, you know, use them up before they spoil, get cooler actions. There's a lot, there was a lot to like, and I think I just need another plane of it. One thing that I very much didn't like, and again, one of the reasons why the rules explanation was difficult, as you flagged, actions sometimes required an icon in order to trigger them. Sometimes they didn't require an icon at all. Maddeningly enough, some actions required a uh, one of several icons. And worst of all, some actions didn't require an icon, but gave you a bonus when conjoined with a certain icon. Or, or a bonus turned an icon into something else. Yes. So did that, did that, bo- so does that mean that icon counts as that symbol for all other actions or just when you do this one other? It's, some of them were kind of confusing. Yes. Internalizing the various levers you can pull was a little bit rougher than I would have liked. And again, this is this is effectively a middleweight resource management efficiency euro, and you don't necessarily need that level of complexity in terms of actions. I think it would have been nicer if there were some actions that required an icon always, some actions that never required an icon ever, and you could neatly categorize them, and that would have that would have made a certain degree of sense. But then again, you would have lost some of the nuance there. And uh, it was, as a result, like, it was like halfway through the game where I suddenly realized, wait a minute, there's this action I can do that doesn't require an icon, and based on the actions that I've done before, it will let me drown in resources every time I do it. Okay, cool. And that really was the sort of force multiplier that I hadn't really cottoned into. Now, maybe that was just my fault for not paying attention, but again, uh, I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of some of the rough edges. And the other part was where everyone has two meeples, and one moves around... The different buildings you you want to build, and then one moves around where you're actually building them. Yes, and they just really didn't seem to do that much. Well, I liked the I, I liked the element of the meeple on the board directing where you can build things. And actually, just as a parenthetical, this led to a little bit of confusion because I tried following Walker's genius to rename the relevant resources because I, I pointed out that the way you make your overseer move further is with fish, causing Walker to proclaim that clearly then the overseer is a cat and then i started to rename all the resources based on what they looked like you know wood became bacon stone became shattered mirrors jewelry became laser pointers but then i realized oh wait we can't do that this is an el grande type situation where you can't rename things because the way you log resources actually by writing a letter on the board and and some of them are already hard printed so i was halfway through the rose explanation where walker's like what does b mean it's like oh b means brick it's like oh not pez it's like okay so we had to scrap that <laughs> and move on so that part i like the, the walking around rome and some buildings had to be built in certain places and adjacency really mattered that part i thought was great yeah the, it's just it's just the movie like it didn't it never seemed a problem moving that meeple around rome like you always see like I I never had. I, 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 I accelerated their movement a couple times, and I felt that it really did me favors for doing so. I suppose. And then the, the other, other one, I agree with you. The set, the other meeple just moves from blueprint to blueprint when you build a building, 
And it's one. It, it has the kind of blocking that I hate most in Euro games. The whole sort of, well, I'm just going to go build this building and not build a building for five more turns, causing everyone else to be blocked through no conscious effort of anybody else. And not the good kind of blocking where it's like, oh, the four person is sitting there. I have to go su- do something else. It's more like, well, I'm on hold until this thing moves, and it's going to move kind of randomly from my perspective. Well, that, and there's a symbol, the, the umbrella symbol, which lets you bypass that anyway. And yes. It, and it was fairly you know, common. So it really didn't do anything anyway. Yep, I agree. It's, again, classic David Schurze uh, design elements where there's some things to be shaved off. But I look, as I said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a solid middleweight efficiency resource management euro. I'm looking forward to trying it again, again, as you say, with more players. I'm a little bit dubious that the playtime is going to stay all right, because you're right, it was a little bit longer than than we would have wanted it to be. But there's a fair amount of variety in the box, different buildings that can come up. You only play with a subset of buildings every every time. And although the it, although it wasn't a roll and write, the fact that you did get to draw on the map was kind of cool, except for the fact that the markers were kind of uh, not very good. Remember, I remember, and this is a total aside, I remember when Food Chain Magnate came out and I immediately got those dry erase boards. And I thought uh, that's, that was roughly the same time as Talon came out. And the the markers that came with Talon were no good and had to go and get better dry erase markers. Now every other game comes with dry erase markers. So I'm just, I won't even have to go out and buy better ones. I'm just going to mine some of the better dry erase markers from other games for Roman Roll. Anyway, that was Roman Roll, review copy from PSC Games. I will be looking forward to trying it again and uh, maybe Walker will join me or not. So those are the games we played last week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right, Mark, we love Uwe Rosenberg. We do. Look, and he does a lot of look games with lookout games. He's got a new one called Holleroo. Holleroo? Holler. <laughs> is there a T in there or not? There is a T. Well, then it's probably not Holleroo. Holler. Hallertoll. Howard. Hollertow. Hollertow. Guess what? There's sheep and, and, and. You don't say. And growing stuff. And there's farming involved? Yes. So, apparently, Hollertow is a place where they grow a lot of hops. And that's what you're going to be doing uh, in this game. Is I never want to grow hops ever again. Growing hops. Oh, jeez. This game is going to be coming up soon in, in our the, in our uh, topic. It's called Orleans Stories. And it's going to be coming out with an expansion. Story number, because of the Orleans Stories comes with two. This will be story three and four, The Settlers and England versus France. I... I don't have much to say just because I love Orleans. I haven't had a chance to play stories yet. More on that later. Something else that is interesting, Mark. I'm not sure what to make of this. Archon Studios announces Masters of the Universe, Fields of Internia, the board game. Yet did we not just hear recently that Simon is also doing a Masters of the That's Universe fascinating. game? It is fascinating because when I looked more into this, it says... This game will only be available in Europe. Oh. But will be coming to Kickstarter. So that made me want to go back and look at the Simon one. And the Simon one reads, Masters of the Universe board game in North America, South America, and throughout Asia. Oh, this has got to be a licensing thing. So does this mean, but does this mean it's going to be the same Kickstarter, but they're just going to be distributing it differently? And the other thing is, is that right now you can pre-order He-Man on on Battle Cat, and it's going to be usable in the game. But is this going to be part of the Kickstarter as well, or do you have to order it now, or so else you're never questions. going to get it? 
this whole thing seems so weird right I now. I would be surprised if Simon would partner with Archon because Archon has a very shady reputation. I will say that I have never had anything other than good experiences with Ar- Archon personally, but they are a little bit dubious in terms of their former relationship to Protoss Productions and they're kind of sort of the same company. And they did bilk a lot of people out of a lot of money about the whole Alien versus Predator fiasco. But I'm a mild to moderate fan of some of their output. So I'd, I'd be surprised if Simon were partnering with them. But they might have just got the license for European distribution for some... I don't know. Okay, so very soon, there might be two different He-Man and the Masters of the Universe That'd be He's Men. He's Men. Yes. On, on Kickstarter. So Kickstarter. Kickstarter. Yes. You have to get the pluralization. I'm very Walker. sorry. No, it's fine. All right. David Thompson is not limited to his collaboration with Trevor Benjamin, with whom he co-designed War Chest and the Undaunted games. He's going to be coming out with a game called Switch and Signal, and I'm intrigued about this for two reasons. Number one, David Thompson is absolutely a designer to watch, and I really like what he does. And also because this is going to be a co-op pick-up-and-deliver game, which is not something I have much experience with. There was a print-and-play version released not too long ago, and David Thompson says that the only similarity that the published version has is broad strokes. And so a lot of the details have been changed, including, for example, the fundamental action selection mechanism. So not a, not necessarily a similar version, but more like a complete reworking. And this is going to be published by Cosmos in the near future, and so I'm looking forward to checking out Switch and Signal. Last two things for me. Dinosaur World from Panasaurus Games, the makers of Dinosaur Island. It's... From the read, it almost looks like not like a second edition, but sort of like a follow-up game. Once again, you're going to be making a dinosaur or running or going through a dinosaur park of some kind. One of the designers is the same, which is Brian Lewis, but he's being partnered up with two new people, David McGregor and Marissa Masara. So we'll have to see. I love Dinosaur Island. For th- reasons passing understanding. And I think I, I just recently sold it, and I think I did a, I, it was a very good timing just before Dinosaur World was announced. You're prescient, Walker. So that was great. And second up, this was, was could have been either in the games played this week or in news. I had it in news, but then I got to get a quick game in before we started today, and that was Root is now on Steam. So there's the Root, the app, and my God, it is adorable, Mark. It's, just, <laughs> it's not just it's not just two dimensional, you know, flat board move around stuff. There's like little three dimensional woodland creatures that skip along and move and fight each other, and I love it. And I think I'm going to be playing a lot of Root this week. Well, I have three comments about the Root, and they're uh, all garbage uh, and and not no. fair. No. No, they're all extremely fair. I am scrupulously fair. Everyone says so, or at least everyone that matters, except my mother. One of them is it's early access. I'm dubious about early access. Number two, there are no expansion factions. No expansion factions. No money. Oh for come me. on. Number it's, three, what? I'm saying just, I'm what? It's just released. You yeah, can't release it's just it. released. So I'm going to wait. You can't release it with expansions. I didn't say therefore it's a garbage product. I was explaining why I'm not going to be giving them any money. Oh, I see. I see. And one of the things that I like about Root is the different factions available, and I'm not going to give. It's the same reason why I haven't bought the Spirit Island app. I, I have more Spirit Island stuff elsewhere. I have more Root stuff elsewhere. I'm not going to give them money until that's done. And number three which is interesting there have been a number of rules changes to accommodate the digital format and one of the reasons why i hate digital adaptations i've talked about this at length is there's frequently endless series of confirmations so in the context of root it's because there are ambush cards right 
I attack you. You have there is one kind of card called an ambush card, which is an immediate response and causes me to take damage before the fight starts. Now, the way this would normally be adapted in the majority of digital adaptations is every time a fight starts, you would then wait for a prompt for the opponent to say, "I am not playing an ambush card." If they had one. In most cases of, of games like this, you always wait for a prompt, because otherwise, you will know whether or not they have an ambush card. I suppose. In this case, what they've decided to do, and again, this is interesting, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it, you only get the prompt if they have the ambush card. So every time you declare an attack, you effectively know whether or not the other, the other person has an ambush card. I respect why they did this, because it, it smooths out gameplay tremendously, and reduces a lot of these unnecessary clicks that I find bedevil a lot of digital adaptations. And number two, it makes asynchronous play much more possible. Without it, asynchronous play would take forever because I have three actions and two of those are declaring attacks. Oh, I have to wait for confirmation from two different opponents at various times in order to proceed with the asynchronous game. Uh, they also changed something with the field hospitals about the Marquise de Cat, which people are complaining about rather ex- extensively online for legitimate reasons. The Marquise de Cat's fortress becomes very, very, very weak and vulnerable, especially in a four-player game in the rules changes that they've implemented. But it's early access, so none of this is set in stone. I just find it interesting when there are rules changes to adapt to the digital environment. I like the fact that there are AI players you can insert, and they have a challenge mode sort of thing, so you can like work your way through. Oh, cool. So like the first one was, you know, win a game against two easy AIs. That's all I've done so far. So, <laughs> How do they react when you insult their mothers? Uh, not very well, Mark. They, really? They were, that, that's they good were, AI. They were quite upset. In that's, fact, that's in fact, the one little mouse cried for a while. I felt bad. And then it drowned in its own tears, and so I, I, I giggled a little. <laughs> now, you know, that sounds like solid programming. Maybe I should buy it after all. And that is the news and why it does not matter. Onward to our topic of the week, which is, why is this still on my shelf? Next time, that's the first one to go. Why didn't we play that last week? Well, Mary doesn't like that one. David hates that one. Susan said she's never going to play that one again. Either I need new games or new friends. That one was really hard to find. I'm not getting rid of that. (laughs) Well, that's the deluxe version. I'm not selling that one. Some reviewer said that was bad after I bought it. I'm not going to play it now. (laughs) (laughs) Who who in the right mind listens to a reviewer? I don't know. Uh, That doesn't sound like a healthy attitude. So these are games that we, for whatever reason that we will discuss, are keeping on our shelves, despite the fact that we think that there is next to no likelihood or no likelihood at all that we will ever play them again. This is a particular... We've we've brushed on this. We've had a number of topics about collecting and about curating collections and about what games to keep and games to get rid of and how to get rid of games, etc. This is... Kind of like the neurosis corollary of those discussions. The, the sheer irrationality of keeping the object around when we're never going to play it again. Which I will defend for what it's worth. Although in some cases I recognize that it's irrational. So I've, I've broken down mine into like different categories of why. Me too. And I have a couple of examples in each one. So do I. But we should start with a category that is uh, probably not very common to many of our listeners. And is somewhat kind of a professional hazard. And that is review copies. We do not sell or trade away review copies. That is our official standard here. We don't want to... It seems a little crass, I think, to profit off of getting a review copy from a publisher that we don't like. Uh, so we keep them all. The most that we've ever done in the past 
is uh, we've given away copies to swaggers. Um, like, for example, we ended up with a spare copy of Imperial Struggle as a result of getting a review copy. And with GMT's permission, we gave that away to one of our uh, patrons. And so with the minor exception of sometimes giving them away to swaggers, we uh, we keep all the review copies we get, which is eventually going to be a bit of a storage problem. <laughs> Agreed. So my first category is you've bought it, but you just haven't played it yet. So it sits on the shelf there. And so, like I already talked about, New Orleans stories. It's that sort of feeds into a reviewer said something. I've heard lots of comments online that the, that the rule book is terrible and it doesn't, and it's, it's, it hasn't been received from what I've heard. Well, maybe these are all completely wrong. Maybe the game is actually fantastic. It's just, I haven't had a chance. It's all sorted. It's all ready to go. It just haven't hit the table yet. So do you have a kind of objection to selling or trading or getting rid of games that you haven't played yet? Yes. Yeah, that's reasonable. I frequently trade away games that I've never played before. (laughs) Sometimes it's because in getting the game, I then realize in terms of doing the closer inspection that it's not what I wanted after all. Or sometimes it's I realize after getting it and then it being in the bag that that gets brought to game night, realizing that it's not going to hit the table and then I'm able to flip it. I'm sure sometimes it's just, it's uh, part of the package that you get with other stuff. I don't know how your trades work. I, I'm not into it, but that some... doesn't happen very often. Oh no. Okay. No, only in, uh, typically only in uh, math trades where there's a uh, sweetener. For example, I've got an extra copy of the most excellent one deck dungeon forest of shadows as a result of it being a, a sweetener. Um, sometimes you just get random crap because very much like many collectors do. They figure, well, there's this game that might actually attract attention, but maybe I can get these suckers to take all this other stuff that I don't, (laughs) that I know I can't get rid of. Other than that, no, everything I get is deliberately. A related category for me is gifts. I am not willing, well, I'm less willing. I don't know if I've ever done it before, but on the face of it, I can think of a couple of games that I've received as gifts that are actual, like, legit hobby games, not like some sort of random, I saw this in Walmart, and I know you like games, so have this themed edition of life or something, that I do not enjoy at all and would normally seek to flip, but it seems a little crass to trade away. I, you don't agree? I disagree. No. You disagree? Okay. My family's bought, sorry, my family has attempted to buy me games in the past, and they immediately go back to the store <laughs> for credit, and I buy. And I'm pretty sure they just assume that. But are they legit hobby games, though? Like, yeah. not, not that I'm not that I'm denigrating, they not, are. not that I'm saying that these other games are necessarily crap. But like, there are people who have gotten me games specifically because they know the hobby and they know me, and they figure, you know, this might be a good fit, and it just wasn't. No, they 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 made okay. the attempt, and th- wish- this year I just I just told them. <laughs> I, I just pretty well said enough, enough. This is, actually I didn't tell them that's a lie, because I I I've heard that when they go in they ask the store owner and he just oh, sort sure. of you know, points them towards something that he thinks that I might like, but has been wrong in the past. Every time. <laughs> so I, I sort of preempted and called. I said, you know, if they come in to get a game this year for Christmas, just tell them to buy this one, please. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. That's really, oh, wow. I should really interest. Oh, well, good thinking. Thank you. <laughs> My next uh, category is yet another campaign game. So some of these I don't own, but while writing these down, I was sort of falling into a nightmare, Mark. This is terrible. How so? How Just how many there are, how many I have, how many I still want to play. But there's just no way that you can play this many campaign games. Imperial Assault, 
Kingdom Death Monster, Scion Tempor, Reichbusters, Grail, Descent Second Edition, Batman Gotham City Chronicles, three different Gloom Havens. <laughs> Glo- Glooms Haven. Glooms Havens. Well, uh, sorry, this is a very, very minor emendation. Does Batman have a campaign? No, I suppose not. Okay, well, but that's it's... okay. There you go. That's one off your list. There you go. <laughs> I've helped you. Yeah, somewhat relatedly, I, there are games where I've completed the campaign. So this was definitely the, the case of Pandemic Legacy. Pandemic Legacy, I literally just threw out. I salvaged what I could from, you know, camp, you always need cubes. You always need this, that, and the other. The rest I recycled. I felt I felt 10 pounds lighter at the end of it. So this, these are things that I was able to... So I haven't myself. done that yet. I, I sort of just ripped everything off the board and made a, a standard Pandemic game out of it. Sure, I already have standard pandemic though, so I wouldn't necessarily feel the the, the need to do that. Yeah, campaigns are, are are tricky. It's 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 why one of the reasons why we're being so selective about things. It's uh, it's awkward. I don't really, I've I've been avoiding them so strenuously lately that I actually don't have any that fall into that category, and I'm very happy about did it. Did I say Grail? You did say Tandy okay, Grail yeah, fall yeah, level. Yeah. No, but we. I intend to get back to that. I th- and I think we're going to have time to do it in the, in the future. So Yes. So I, I haven't written Tainted Grail off. I live in a, st- in a state of optimism. I have, uh, well, somewhat relatedly, there is a campaign in here. There are games that are sufficiently player count dependent and new game unfriendly. Ones where you have to play a couple of scenarios to get up to speed, as it were, where you kind of sort of have to. And I talked about this in talking about games with very restricted player counts, and that's Mech Command RTS. I really like real-time games. I like team games. I love mechs. And Mech Command RTS has a lovely little visual gimmick. It's probably never getting to the table ever again. That makes me a little sad, but at least I get to keep it around. (laughs) It's true. That was it was really cool little laser light. Anyway, yeah, I do want to play it again. Next topic I have is I will never get what I paid for it, so it's going to stay right where it is. Oh, sure. In this list, we have HeroScape. Right, I, we can almost see yep. it behind us. In you know, on the other side of our giant blanket fort is you know the multiple bins of HeroScape. I don't know. You might be able to sell that for some money. I, I keep my HeroScape around for different reasons, for nostalgic reasons. Well, that 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 I also have. Yeah, I have a nostalgia reason, and HeroScape is the only one that's in that, so we'll cover that quickly. Yeah. Um, Imperial Assault is the same. All of Imperial Assault, there's yeah. no way. Descent, all of Descent 2nd Edition. And Sentinels of the Multiverse, to a lesser degree, because that does hit the table fairly oh, yeah. frequently. But still, just the fact that there's no way... <laughs> You're going to put that in the market and get even close to, you know, what you paid for it. Absolutely. Although I don't often find that that's a barrier for me. Like no. t- taking it as a loss if if somebody's willing to take it, then usually that's fine. No, but in the, in the like actual practice it's not a problem, but the fact that it's just so It's a psychological of, it, yeah, hurdle. It's so subconscious. Understood, right? understood. I'm just saying that very much like you don't have the psychological hurdle of getting rid of gifts, I don't really have the psychological hurdle of realizing that I'm 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 selling this for a loss. I am uh, I have enough faith in capitalism that if both parties of the deal get what they want out of it, I don't necessarily feel that there's any problem whatsoever, and I don't care what quote-unquote fair market value is. If both start- parties walk away satisfied, that is the glory of a free market system. I wish that was, the- that was always the case. I'm just always worried that they will turn around and sell it for ten times what you just got for it. I don't care, because <laughs> the effort of getting a good price is sometimes something I'm not willing to do. So in a very real way, that when I pay someone to do labor that I'm not able or willing to do myself, if I sell something and then they go flip it for a profit, that's fine. I'm effectively paying them to get rid of something. And I've got no problem with that. 
This is fa- this is very illuminating. Finding out our different little psychological go. hangups. Uh, then there are uh, related to HeroScape. There are other miniatures games. There are some miniatures collections that I will probably never use. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of my Heavy Gear Blitz minis because miniatures games, tabletop miniatures games, are very, very local group dependent. Nobody around here plays Heavy Gear Blitz, and they're not of a scale that I find re- readily uh, adaptable to other things. Now, uh, the Infinity minis, I don't really play Infinity anymore uh, much, but the minis I use for lots of other things, like Horizon War Zero Dark, or proxying for the copy of Blackstone Fortress that I have that doesn't have any minis in them, that part is fine. The great thing is, uh, you know, miniatures collections are awkward because they are they tend to be very expensive and they sit around and they occupy space. Miniatures games books, though, that you're never going to play are fine because they're books. So I've got, you know, the, the, the Ragnarok book, Mercs, a whole bunch of Malifaux books. I've even got some old Battletech books. I've got a Battletech rules compendium. I'm never going to play Battletech again, but it's fine. It just sits on the, on the bookshelf. That's fine with me. I'm not going to make any comments on, on miniatures, Merc, because, you know, I'm down to two locations where my stuff is now. And if I talk about miniatures, I'd have to think of of, of my second location. I'm and, sorry. I don't and, want to have to trigger you, Walker. And how many, how much metal and plastic is there? <laughs> move on, so, Walker. Let's move on. Power through. The next one is, it's a great game, but I have 10 just like it. Yes. So this, I only have two things, thing, generic themes in this one. is that That's it's party games. I'm, I'm slowly amassing a large amount of them, like dexterity slash party games. Whereas, you know, you're, you're, you tend to always grab this one first and the other ones will sit there and not get played. And the other one is just two player games. Yeah. You know, these are all, these are fantastic two player games, but then, you know, they're just not going to get played. Well, I don't have it. I have, I have a bit less of a problem getting rid of party and dexterity games because to me, and again, part of this is because of the way we approach the hobby. Part of this is also because we have a podcast. I have no problem with trading for a game or even buying it playing it two or three times, and even if I really enjoy it, then selling it or trading it on the back end, uh, even at a loss. Because, again, that's just the way we approach the hobby, and so I'm okay with that. So I don't have this large pile of things accumulating dust. There are there are a couple of exceptions, though, on this topic that you raised. One of them is Parat and Billiard. Parat and Billiard actually was given to me by Woogie largely because he couldn't get rid of it himself, because it's too big to ship. It's this massive box that you can't trade or sell because the shipping costs are pro- and so he gave it to me in part because I wanted to try it some more. And I did, and it's great, and I had a great time with Breton Billiard. I can't move on, though. I'm going to be stuck with this thing forever. <laughs> uh, the other the other salient example of a two-player game that I probably should get rid of but never will is Duel of Ages 2. I love Duel of Ages. It's great. Nobody local wants to play it. And all the partners that I had in other cities are long gone. But I'm never going to get rid of Duel of Ages. I just have too many fond memories, and I have too much enthusiasm for the game, even though it's never going to hit the table. And that that sort of falls into the next category I have here, which is it's just it's just quite simply your favorite game, but no one else really likes it. And mine would be uh, Level Seven, Level Seven Invasion, Level Seven Invasion. Just love it. No one will ever play it because they don't understand what a fun game is. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a great game. People just don't know it yet. Yeah, that's what I've written. So the ones where local people don't appreciate it, above and beyond, you know, just the vicissitudes of local miniatures, player habits, the one where local players will probably never consent to play it, that I, but I'll never get rid of, is probably La Révolution Française, La Patrie en danger, 1791 à 1795. Full title, of course. Are you, are you done? 
come down. See, that's one of the reasons why people won't play it, because it has strange foreign words associated with it. And people who live in Canada, nominally a bilingual country, are less willing to play it than all the Americans that I successfully introduced it to. I only have two left, which are ones funny, which is you're waiting for the expansion. <laughs> yeah, but there at least there's hope that you'll play it again it's later. It's true, it's true. <laughs> and the other one is a legitimate one where it's your friend has it and you always play his copy. Sure. Because like, it's a really good game, like My Blood Rage. Great game. I have, you know, a bunch of the extras to it, but you know, you're caught, you know, you have Fenris. I have Fenris. So we play your copy. Absolutely. And mine has, I, has, I don't think it has been opened in many years. In your, just a question in your copy, who's going to swallow the moon? Yes. No one. So that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, a category of where there's a new edition, but you want to keep the old edition around. This is kind of silly, but, uh, in my case, it, this is true of Demacher. The new Spielworks edition, although not strictly superior, is at least much faster and more accessible than the old Hansom Gluck version. But I have such enthusiasm, especially for the designer Karl-Heinz Schmiel, and I really, really like having the option available to play the older, a little bit more uh, rough-edged version that I probably won't ever get rid of the old Hansom Gluck version. Merchant of Venus would be the same sort of thing. Oh, but Merchant of Venus, I will only play the old version. Oh, well, I, I refuse to play the I new suppose, yeah. Fantasy Flight version because it's not the same game, and you can't play the Quick Start version, which is definitely the way to play. But other Richard Hamblum games definitely fall into the category of things I won't ever get rid of. I'm probably never going to play Magic Realm again, certainly not with, with physical copies. But it's such a unique, iconoclastic design that's so interesting, and I have such fond memories of it. That I, especially of just being able to learn and process the rules, which are such a glory in their incomprehensibility. Or learn and, and process the setup. That too. Yeah. It's no joke. But yeah, I'm never going to get rid of any of my Richard Hamblin games, which is to say Gunslinger, Merchant of Venus, or Magic Realm. They're, they're definitely going to be with my collection forever. And lastly, for me, I've got three reasons why other people might keep stuff on the shelf. Okay. But that don't apply to you? That's right. Okay. It's still in shrink. <laughs> sure I, I have no problems with games and shrink or opening up the shrink regardless even if i'm not going to play it just to look at the parts some people you know like seeing their games and shrink if they're not going to play it right away or whatever like to leave it that way and sometimes it can you know lead to them just leaving it on their shelves and not I've playing it i've received a fair number of games in trade that were in shrink and i don't quite understand the impulse like i say very often i'll get a game and then trade it away without playing it but usually it's because of some information I glean from just going through the game itself. But it could be a collector's item, and they don't want to play it. They don't want to like ruin its resale value or whatever. And, uh, and like I said, it doesn't apply to me. I had Queen's Gambit. I played it every time I could. It was a cool little game. Um, and lastly, the cards aren't in sleeves yet, so they can't play it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I feel sorry for those adherents. Some games that I keep around because of peer pressure. Dr. Contra's favorite game used to be Arkham Horror. I've got a lot of Arkham Horror. Don't want to play Arkham Horror ever again. And even Dr. Contra is almost never in the mood to play Arkham Horror. So, but, but, but you, want it, you want it to be available. Like, say, if she, you know, Dr. Contra ever suddenly says, well, hey, why don't we play? You want to make sure you have it ready. No, then I'd still steer towards playing something oh, else. But okay. she won't. But by the same token, I know she would not be happy if I got rid of Arkham Horror. Gotcha. So Arkham Horror stays. Similarly, had I known that you were just going to be so incredibly pissy about my getting rid of the first edition of Project Elite, I wouldn't have gotten rid of it. Because 
Dewey hates the game, loathes it with a, a fiery passion, and it was highly valuable at the time, so that struck me as good reasons to flip it. I didn't I didn't dislike the first edition. I still like the new edition as well. But when I told you that I traded away Project Elite, it looked like you were about to disown me and just completely forswear ever any knowledge of me ever again. <laughs> so peer pressure is a good reason to keep a game it's around true. even if you're never gonna play it again. There's also Toy Factor, which definitely applies to HeroScape, and uh, one game that I still have around despite not having played in probably about seven or eight years, and that's Mage Knight Dungeons. I've got a lot of Mage Knight Dungeons. Now, this is the dungeon crawl version of the blind buy collectible miniatures tabletop game. I keep it around for two reasons. One of them, as I say, is the Toy Factor. Another is, for a long time, it was the best in category. Yeah, I've, I have very fond memories, and someone's left like three or four bins, so one day we'll have to get everything together and see what we got. Well, but that might start thinking about storage locations. Moving on. I know. Yeah, but for, for a very, very long time, there were no good dungeon crawls. Even after the release of the first edition of Descent, Mage Knight Dungeons, I still think, was the best dungeon crawl available. Now, sadly, it's... Well, sadly. Happily, it's been obsoleted by the fact that the cooperative, specifically the cooperative version of the Dungeon Crawl has seen many, many, many iterations or related adventure games so that Mage Knight Dungeons is now a clunky, obsolete kind of thing. But I still keep it around because I've got all the 3D terrain and the artifacts and stuff. The miniatures are, are, are hideous blobs that were very, very poorly painted. But all the other components have a really, really high toy factor and that's one of the reasons why I cannot bear to part with Mage Knight Dungeons. I should really sell some of the terrain though. It's It's worth a pretty penny on eBay. Maybe I'm talking myself into it. Anyway, so <laughs> if a game's got a high toy factor, I find hard to get rid of it. The same thing applies to Robotech Attack on the SDF-1, which has a cardboard SDF-1 in quote-unquote storm attack mode. And I do not have any other representations of the SDF-1 in my many, many Macross toys. I've got a lot of Valkyries, tons of Valkyries. I've even got a Destroyer or two, but I do not have any toys of the SDF-1. I saw somebody had uploaded a ridiculous project on Thingiverse that's like a four-foot-tall 3D-printed SDF-1. Oh, my lord. <laughs> I showed it to the Hanverker, who has a 3D printer now, and he almost had a seizure. I was going to say, this is my next project. Get to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get to work on this. I'll see you in five years. So there are lots of reasons to keep these things around. Some of them are foolish. Some of them seem to make sense. Let us, let us just acknowledge, though, that collection is, collection, qua collection, at its core, is a fundamentally irrational thing, but can be a source of joy. And if you're, if you're able, swing by the guild, I'm sure there's going to be a huge discussion on why people, you know, keep games. So you can tell us why you keep certain games. Really? Is that what they can do with the guild? I thought, I thought the, the only function of the guild was to talk about how we're idiots. That, and to make sure I keep my elo up. <laughs> A noble goal indeed. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out the aforementioned Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.